This episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by The Athletic. Do not miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season and those seasons beyond, obviously. Subscribe now and save. You can sign up to see yourself the creativity reporting and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. It certainly does. Carl Anka is today's guest. He writes for The Athletic. He references lots of different articles that do a very good job of showcasing all of the many things The Athletic have going on. And if you go to theathletic.com slash totalsoccer, you can receive 40% off an annual subscription. That's 4-0%. That's a decent percentage. A large percentage, I would say. Sports are back. You won't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite teams. Go to theathletic.com slash totalsoccer for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. As you can guess, since I am the voice doing the introduction, Daryl Grove is not with me today. Instead, I'm talking to a different Englishman, still an Englishman, but a different one. It's Carl Anka. Carl writes about Southampton for The Athletic. He has written previously about Manchester United for The Athletic. He has several different podcasts. We talk about those as well. But we spend a very large chunk of the show going deep on Southampton, how they turn their season around, what Hasenhutl brings to the table, what the future may hold for the team, including how or how not West McKinney fits in there. We also get into Manchester United, what's gone wrong with David De Gea. Carl has some specific theories about why things aren't going well, but what could sort of change there or not change there, uh, who they should go after, what players might not work out in the long run for Oleg under Solskjaer. There's also conversations in there about analytics and the way they're utilized by managers, both in terms of how they can effectively get the best out of their current squads, but then also how they can go about signing new players based on some of those stats. Lots of other topics, too, including, I think, starting off with wrestling, uh, but wanted to give you a bit of, a, of an explainer of what's all going on there. Before I say, with me now, I've got Carl Anka, who covers Southampton for The Athletic. He has a podcast, uh, Talking Tactics, has a history with Manchester United, lots of things to talk about. Carl, welcome back. And does that all work for you? Do those all seem like topics you're willing to discuss? Oh, yes. Let's get into it. (laughs) I also think I don't think we talked wrestling last time, but I might actually start with wrestling because that also seems to be an area of interest for you. Uh, How did you get into that? And am I correct in saying that you are a wrestling fan? Oh, yeah. Um, I think I'm I'm currently lapsed. But um, yeah, I love wrestling so much. Started off watching wrestling when I was, I want to say six or seven. Mm -hmm. Um, Watching mostly WCW because it was on free TV in the United Kingdom. And then I moved on to WWE. Attitude Era, Stone Cold, The Rock. The first big storyline I remember was who ran over Stone Cold as a kid. <laughs> um, and then uh, around a, like a 20, natural story arc, yeah. I think, what, it was around like 2011, 2012. I was at university and a couple of my friends were like, oh, we're going to go watch WrestleMania. Like, Why are you watching WrestleMania? He goes, because we're grownups. Like, we can do we can do all the kid stuff now if we want to. I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I want to watch WrestleMania. There you go. And then just kept watching it. And I watched it nonstop. Pretty much from 2013, the rise of Daniel Bryant up until two WrestleManias ago. Um, and then I just sort of stopped. Not for anything, but it's just there's just so much wrestling. I'll come back to it one day. Wrestling's like pizza. Even when it's bad, it's still pretty good. <laughs> who was who is your WCW wrestler of choice? Because I think that was around when I, I got into it as well. I would say I'm very much lapsed uh, uh, as you are. Uh, but yeah, I think it was like the Goldberg era and NWO and NWO Wolfpack and all that uh, uh, cre- creativity. Oh, man. Yeah, I was, I was big into NWO. Uh, I was big into um, Goldberg because... 
he's amazing. Uh-huh. Well, he's just like in terms of like raw, uh, something I'd describe as body charisma. Just like yeah, you've got a body like yeah, that's that's a charismatic man. Yep. I want to see that man move and hit things quickly. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I love the N- I love the NWO. I've got an NWO t shirt now. I say listen to that theme song quite often and do the NWO too sweet um, <laughs> to this day. Uh, yeah, I I I consistently tell my friends that if you want to get better at public speaking. You should pick up loads of tricks from professional wrestlers. So sort of how you constantly repeat phrases, how you need to take loads of pauses, um, how it's good to have like a certain sign off that you're known for. Now, if you want to do podcasting or broadcast, try and nick as much as you can from professional wrestling. Who do you think is the best on mic? My, my thoughts immediately go to The Rock because that man can command a room. But who, oh. who's, who's your go to when it comes to uh, the best wrestling orators? The Rock was amazing. So I've met The Rock now and... It's same way of just incredible body charisma because the man's biceps are bigger than my head. Um, and he's so quick weird. You're just like, how many jokes have you told in 30 seconds? How wow. have you done that? Um, so he was great. I was also a big sucker for Macho Man Randy Savage. Of course. Um, so <laughs> of course. In, in my in my copy, you can quite often see me sneak in cup of coffee in the big time. <laughs> Uh, which is one of his fav- favorite, uh, famous uh, speeches about how a wrestler got a cup of coffee in the big time, brother. <laughs> um, and I've also done two or three times where I've written about how the cream will always rise to the crop. Uh, another <laughs> Macho Man reference. But for me, it's always been Flair. Like, Ric Flair. I've, oh, yeah. I think I've done... There was a definite spell, maybe 2017, 20... For about a year, where every single day I would recite the Rolex-wearing, limousine riding, jet-flying, kiss-stealing son of a gun speech in the shower just like as my pep talk <laughs> that's a good pep talk that is a good way uh, to get yourself going did you give that to the southampton team that lost nine nil is that what turned their season around was you taught them that speech and that was the big the big turning point i think at that point in time i was spending a lot of time yelling at them to defend the back post properly ah. <laughs> <laughs> that's an equally if not lesser known uh rick flair monologue it's about defending the back post and how important that can be uh, let's let's start there then. Let's go to that 9-0 loss because that does get sort of all the attention. It is the easy touchstone for Southampton had a rough season and now they've had an okay season. How important was that loss, do you think, in retrospect in terms of where they were in the season and where they end up finishing? Oh, it's really interesting now because we're doing Zoom press conferences mm-hmm. now in these in these COVID times. Uh, and I only realized maybe after about four of them that they were all put on YouTube afterwards. Oh, that's um, nice. So you can go into Southampton's YouTube channel. You can watch the Zoom calls. You can see what happens when my face pops up. And it was one quite recently, I'd say maybe two or three weeks ago, where, well, I mean, one of the things about Zoom press conferences now is there's just more journalists on it. And a journalist popped in and went, hi, Ralph. Um, congratulations on recent results. I haven't spoken to you since the Leicester City nine nil result, and Ralph rolled his eyes. And went okay, next question, next question. <laughs> um, They're tired of that one, I'm guessing. Quite understandably, he doesn't want to. I don't think he wants to talk about it that yeah. much. And and also as like a local journalist, like we get it, right? It, you get on there, and it's every time they're on broadcast, Southampton on broadcast. Someone goes Southampton. They lost nine nil, but they stuck by their manager, and now Dan Ings has scored loads of goals. It's a great turnaround, and that's the very you know, obvious narrative of Southampton. And it, it is, it's a remarkable season. When I look, when I look over the course of the 352 days, I was tracking their activity of how, for how long I thought Southampton were going to get relegated. And now 
they finished very comfortably in 11th place and without really bringing in any new players in the transfer market. Mm-hmm. And what really happened was basically Ralph went, oh, wait, you're my better centre-backs. You're in. And we're going to go from defending at five at the back to defending four at the back. And it's like, huh, football can be quite simple when you uh, get people to buy into what you're saying. How do you think he went about getting people to buy into it? Was it just sort of, you know what, you are not going to work for me, I'm going to start somebody else? Do you think it's the way he communicates or the way he conducts training sessions? What do you think it is about Ralph Rangnick, or excuse me, Ralph Hasenhudel, not Ralph Rangnick, who, uh, <laughs> who was able to kind of motivate this squad in a way that they weren't at the beginning of the season to finish as strongly as they did uh, in Project Restart? I suspect it had something to do with the change in his, uh, shall we say, workplace demeanor. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Ralph doesn't like to be doesn't like it when the nine nils brought up. He also doesn't like it when he's compared to Jurgen Klopp. Um, so while they did their same coaching badges together, and he's sometimes referred to as the Klopp of the Alps or the Alpine Klopp, um, he wants to maintain he's his own man. But what I thought was quite interesting around about December time, so around about the the interesting period of Southampton's spell, I thought a key distinction between Ralph Hassel and Jurgen Klopp was Jurgen Klopp hugs his football players. And is a, a we can you know it's fair to say Jurgen Klopp is a very positive man. Whereas for the at the start of the season in particular, Ralph Hassel came across as quite headmasterly and a little bit cold. And I think if you're a football manager that wants to play you know a high pressing, highly energetic style of football that involves loads of running, you have to be positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be positive when it's winning and be like see that boys all that running and you won hooray. And you have to be very positive when you're losing, going, don't lose faith. You should still press against the ball. You should still be doing all this stuff because, trust me, eventually it will come good. And I think while the 9-0 brought up a lot of bad things and years of bad playing at Southampton to the surface, uh, I think the key issue, the key period of time was the international break that happened in November, just after that result, where it sounds as if, Ralph Hassel had a series of talks with his team and basically went, why don't you boys press? And the boys were essentially going, we're quite tired and we don't really believe that you have any faith in us. And Ralph is more or less went, ah, right. Maybe I need to be a bit more, you know, practice some humility and be a bit more encouraging of my players. Um, And I think that was a great change. Ralph Hassel's demeanor in September compared to his demeanor in March a world apart. How prickly is he then with the media? Uh, like you mentioned the one like with the, with the journalist saying, like, I haven't spoken to you since that 9-0 loss. He says, next question. Does he actually move to the next question or does he still allow for that reporter to, to finish up the, the question that was going to be in line? Because I think sometimes we do get those managers who like are very friendly with their squad, <laughs> very prickly with the media. I'm wondering where he is in that in that realm. He's... Very the Zoom. I think the Zoom press conference has add, have added another dimension to all football managers. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hassel has a very typical Austrian sense of humour. It can be quite dry. It can be very sarcastic. Um, and he has been quite sarcastic, but I, I like it. In like a you're you're very clearly not making me and having a laugh, but <laughs> you're also allowing me in on the laugh as well, which has been quite fun. Um, whereas, you know, I think at the start of the season, he had a little bit, he didn't have enough time to be funny or, or to be welcoming. So he, he will go next question and then answer the question about the 9-0 anyway. 
Um, I seem to have got a half decent relationship with him now. Uh, so before their game against Everton in the restart, I went to Ralph Hassel. I said, um, oh, you know, I said, Ralph, you have a bad record against teams that play two strikers up top and Everton are played with a 4-4-2. Are you concerned about this by any chance? And he sort of made lines that it's very interesting you say this. I don't think we have this problem. Mm-hmm. They drew the game 1-1 and I said, <laughs> uh, and after the game, I went to Hassel and went, hey, so, you know, what was behind the improved defensive performance to a team with two strikers up top? And he just looked down the Zoom call and went, because we heard about your stats saying they couldn't defend properly. I I think you should just run with that and claim credit for for the result. I think that's well done by you. So then when you're in those types of conversations with him, like does he, I feel like most coaches that I've experienced, when you say this is something you all do or you all clearly struggle, it seems to be those like intensifiers, those adjectives seem to strike a chord. If you want to annoy a coach, tell them what they did and then say it was very obvious. And that seems to (laughs) get a strong response. Does he sort of have that approach as well where if you say you all do this does he kind of reject it outright or is he willing to roll with it a little bit um i think the interesting thing for me as well as a journalist is i've begun to change my questioning so mm-hmm. i won't go this is what you always do yeah um there was a point so the first project restart game um against norwich they so you know you haven't seen southern play football for over 100 days and i what i've begun to do a lot more now is going ralph it looks as if your team is doing this. Could yeah. you explain that a little bit? Um, and Hassel, you know, a very robust tactical manager, especially when Southampton win, will happily oblige me and go, this is what's going on. This is why we're doing this. This is why we're doing this and this, which I think is quite interesting. Um, if you term it a lot more to, to managers of going, it looks as if you're doing this. Are you planning to do this? Then a manager will tell you more. Rather than when you go, this is a thing you do, obviously, um, because especially when you are talking to football managers that have playing history, you can, uh, I think quite a few of them be like, what are you talking about? That's nothing like how the game is played. <laughs> um, so yes, the, the, the back post example, there was a point, I think it was in December time where I said to Arsenal, oh, you seem to be conceding quite a few crosses from the back post. Um, does it concern you at all? Does it concern you that certain teams might be trying to score this way? Um, and he as uh, politely as he put it, explained that one of his right backs was only five foot seven, so he couldn't really do much. <laughs> and like, but see, the, there's those moments where, like, if Mourinho says that, he says it in a way that sounds like he is attacking the player for not being tall enough, and that's the major <laughs> issue we have defensively. Is Hassel Hoodle, who? It sounds like are you calling him Hassel, by the way? Because if so, I, am, I love it. I'm it makes calling me very Hassel. It's my. I've got like a. It's like a tick. It's Hassan. <laughs> it's Hassan Hoodle, and I'll fix this one day. I apologize to listeners. No, I just I think, keep picking out. <laughs> I just assumed it was a nickname of like, yeah, he he's a hassler. He's a hustler. <laughs> I, I like that. Like, do, but when he says that type of comment, it, does it come across more as? Like neutral, like an actual like bit of analysis versus a critique of the player, because that is sort of my outsider's understanding of Southampton right now. Is like things are great, and he's sort of like likable as a manager because he's getting good results. So I'm wondering if that does then extend to the way he even talks about his players. He's a very positive manager in his press conferences and how he comes across. He freaks. So the most common words he uses in his press conferences are, are, are bravery. So he constantly talks about how his team needs to be very brave because uh, there are four central tenets of the way Southampton play football. And three of them are what they do when they're out of possession. 
which is a pretty robust way of playing football. It's all about counter-pressing and whatnot. Um, the way I've described it previously is um, Southampton basically are throwing you a football, and then when you're so distracted in catching it, they're trying to punch you in the nose. <laughs> Uh, and and that, that's that's what it, that's how they look like. Hey, that's, that's hey, well have possession. Yeah, have possession. Whoop, <laughs> we scored. Um, and he is so he throughout his career. So you know, Hassel Hutel's career started in Bundesliga three, um, and he worked his way up through the lower leagues. And I'd say, while Red Bull Leipzig are probably the biggest club he's managed, he got them there because they were only just promoted from Bundesliga two when he took charge and then he took them into the Champions League spaces. Um, so he is known for working with young players. So you will very rarely sign a player on uh, above the age of 24. Uh, and he also refers to any player that he likes. So like Ralph speak for a player he likes is open-minded. If he describes a player as open-minded, then you know he really likes them. Uh, because if they're open-minded, you're basically you know, willing to take on his teachings. And I think when you when you have a manager that constantly talks about his players being brave and believing in what they and believing in what he tells them to do, and how his choice of compliment is you're open minded, you get the picture of a man who is very much, if you do what I tell you to do, we're all going to win as a collective. Um, and you know this comes down to his playing style as well, which is this four two 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 system that is all about building up overloads in certain positions and then scoring very quickly. Like the the, the intention, you know, the the essential tenant of Ralph Ball, as it is, is if you are very positive and on the front foot, then we can close the gap between any individual quality between you and your opponent. And I think to do that, you have to be a very positive person, and it's coming through a lot more now. Southampton are in a better place. Much more still to come from Carl Anka, but first, this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Roman. We've talked previously about how difficult it can be to schedule an appointment to see a doctor, especially in the United States. And that's difficulty from a scheduling it perspective, but then also the weight that can be involved, sometimes up to a month. And when you're dealing with certain conditions, especially something like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment as quickly as possible. And that's where Roman comes in. Roman makes it convenient and easy to get the treatment you need on your schedule. That is fundamentally important. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit. You'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If that doctor decides treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. They're very flexible, is I guess what I'm saying. So, if you're struggling with erectile dysfunction, go to GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Thank you very much to Roman for sponsoring this episode, and thank you very much to Carl Anka, to whom we shall now return. Uh, I want to talk about that better place in a second, but first, if you ask a question and he responds, that was an open-minded and brave question, are you going to feel about as good as you possibly could? Because that seems like the highest praise he could give you. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd pop really hard. Uh, <laughs> the, right. so the last press conference we had before the season started, again, because these are all via Zoom, you're on like, your webinars and then you get picked out in the Zoom and you can get put through. So you have that moment on the Zoom where you sort of switch on your camera and then switch on your microphone. Um, so I had my moment where I sort of switched on my camera and waved to Ralph, and then you can just see him on the thing. He just he did like a really big sweeping wave back. It's like, hi, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
You go, what stats have you got for me this time? Because very often, very often I'm just going, I've been studying XG all week. Tell me about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that does not surprise me that that would be your approach because I know uh, I, I loved reading about the Danny Ings uh, 5% goal. Uh, we're going to talk about Danny Ings. But first, I do want to talk about those youngsters you mentioned. Southampton obviously have that strong reputation when it comes to youth development, bringing through young players. You can ask Liverpool if you don't believe me. They've been continuing that tendency in Project Restart. Who are some of the youngsters that you've been writing about that you've been seeing that you think will become more known to like casual Premier League fans next season? So I I went to every single home game for Southampton. And anytime Ralph named a academy graduate on his bench, I made a point of asking him after the game, who is this youngster that doesn't have a Wikipedia page and what can we expect from him? Uh, and then I spent the three weeks afterwards sort of researching them finding family friends finding their first sort of coaches and going tell me more about this young man so you can find this on the athletic now it's stories on a central midfielder called alex jankovic who is swiss and was described as baby pogba by one of his first of the coaches um he's a lovely young man who really likes tacos and was born on christmas day um, so all, these are all wonderful and useful facts for me thank you for that <laughs> baby pogba is... tacos born on christmas got it there is will ferry a Republic of Ireland on the 19 International, who is from Bury originally, and he is really into the Manchester scene of music, which um, is one of the things that I think I still know about, because, but the closer I get to 30, I think that might be different. Because <laughs> <laughs> Manchester has more, more bands yeah. over and over and over again. So there's Will Ferry as well. Um, Will Ferry is a particularly interesting left winger who... Uh, I think might come through next season as well. Uh, and then there's also Nathan Teller, who is the only youngster from Southampton to actually go off the bench and actually play football, who is a, a right wing striker hybrid. You used to come from Arsenal's academy as well, who basically spent lockdown. He was, he was injured when lockdown began. So he, uh, bless his heart. Southampton sent what bikes, the exercise bike out to every team member that didn't have training equipment at home uh, and from what i understand nathan was rehabbing on his exercise bike and um, with like netflix in front of him and just was constantly you know getting to like the fittest cardio form of his life while watching pretty much every television show you can imagine this young man watched the last dance he watched money heist <laughs> he watched uh Oz- ozark as well I went, uh-huh. oh, uh, I went, oh bless your heart and then sort of you watch him play football, like, yeah, you were definitely on the exercise bike while you were watching these TV shows. My God, you can run. <laughs> wow. See, I did the TV watching part during quarantine, less so the constantly <laughs> on the exercise bike part of things. It's probably why I'm um, not a Premier League footballer. One of the one of the several reasons why I'm not. I recommend those three players as future standouts to make their Premier League debuts if they have not already. I think um, there's also Jake Vokins, uh, backup left back, who made his debut against Brighton, who is a so he is 20 years of age now he used to be a left winger and then around about 14 15 the side he was a left back and he plays left back you can tell he used to be a winger such as the way he gets up and down the field and puts in crosses and doesn't mind a shot which i find is quite fun uh, there's also will smallbone who made his debut in the fa cup in january and has been getting a little bit more game time who he is a gentleman that you want to feel old said when he was growing up, he really enjoyed watching Iniesta play football. Oh man. 
That's yep. not cool. That's not okay. Yep. I don't. I don't appreciate that. Um, another Jake youngster, Vokins. Jake Vokins, when he grew up idolizing Luke Shaw. Ah, man. All right. Wow. That's. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I am fully aware that many players today are, are teenagers and do not have much in, in common with me, a thirty-five-year-old person. Uh, but that's still that's still tough to hear. I'm not going to lie. Uh, you didn't mention Michael Obafemi in there. I know because you're talking about sort of youngsters who are on the cusp. But that's another youngster who I feel like it's indicative of what Southampton do that this is a twenty-year-old Irish striker who's scoring goals and is already sort of like an established veteran within that team, despite only being twenty. What have you made of his season, and what do you think? next season looks like for him he's a really interesting football player in terms of just body um so he's quite short he's around five foot seven but he's very very wide very stocky um short and stocky uh incredibly fast uh Hassan will, will refer to him as a formula one car last season and uh has tried to get him to play two or three games but he suffered a really big hamstring injury last season i want to say um from it looked as if he wasn't stretching properly and Ralph was quite annoyed at this um, and Ralph has been quite vocal at when he doesn't believe Michael is doing good things he is very much uh, going for the stick rather than the carrot with Obafemi and uh, Obafemi is, is something he will is one that is a rare player he, who he will criticise in his press conferences but you can also see loads of photographs of them together at training and it's very clear Obafemi makes Ralph laugh mm-hmm. And he makes quite a few of the players laugh in in the changing room. He's, I've met him before. He told me his childhood nickname was Nostrils, and he just flared his nose at me. Um, <laughs> he's he's very funny. He's very quick witted. Um, he's really really quick, and it, it's he's a very strange striker in that I'm not sure if he quite fits Ralph's system yet. But if he truly devotes himself to this high pressing system and being and making a nuisance of yourself when you're off the ball, I definitely think he will be a, a you know a very good second third option for Southampton next season. Their uh, primary option when it comes to goal scoring was obviously Danny Ings this season. A major question about him is one you asked yourself in that Southampton review, and I'm going to ask you now. Did Danny Ings ride a hot streak, or is he genuinely a Champions League-level striker, and how has he performed so well this season? Mm, mm, mm. What a man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he's got 22 goals this season on an XG of around about 15 so he has definitely outperformed his XG this season uh, and outperformed in the, this will probably balance out, but his underlying numbers suggest that he is a 13 to 14 goal a season striker anyway. And I think the really interesting thing about Danny Ings was because of the knee injuries he had at Liverpool, there just simply wasn't a large enough sample size for him anymore um, in, in terms of the deepened stats and numbers. If you really think about uh, stats in football's boom happened around about 2015, which is pretty much exactly when Danny Ings got his injury. Um, you know, stats come into football around about the time Jurgen Klopp gets Liverpool up and running, and that's also when you know, I think it was the very first training session Jurgen Klopp carried at Liverpool, where Ings did his ACL. So that was quite concerning. But I think what was really interesting about Ings is of those 22 goals, one of them is a penalty. Two of those goals are him charging down the striker. Um, charging down the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper just sort of laying an egg and him nicking it and scoring. Um, he's also hit the crossbar or the woodwork five times as well, such as the way he has such a really, he has a really aggressive shot where he picks up the ball on the left half space and cuts inside and shoots on his right foot. It's a really, really fun thing to do where he's like, oh yeah, he's he's doing that thing he's always does again. This is probably going to be a goal. He, he scored again. 
I love it when he does that. Um, which is quite fun to do as well. So he's got a very pronounced scoring technique. He's got a very clear hot zone on the pitch where he likes to pick up the ball and he likes to get a shot off as well. And his underlying numbers make me think he will probably get 14 goals next season as well. And I think it's not only Danny Ings probably the real deal, but also there is a very, very strong argument to be made now that Danny Ings should probably be traveling with England mm-hmm. um, to the Euro 2020 next season. I think... Uh, the options currently to Gareth Southgate of Harry Kane, Marcus Rashford. What, yeah, those two aside, I think your third choice should probably be Inks on, on current form as it is. And I think if Inks can continue this form and get the 15 goals, I think he definitely has merit as a plan B. And then you get into a wider conversation about Tammy Abraham or possibly Dominic Calvin after that. So with... Southampton this season, obviously Danny Ings, critical, uh, many other players, important, say Hoiberg, for example. We're looking at next season where there is maybe an expectation there will be some roster turnover, some changes there. Who do you think they will see leave? Who do you think they will be looking at to bring in? And if you want to spend 20 or 25 minutes talking about Weston McKinney, that's fine, given that we're an American podcast. I'm going to be really, really mean. Mm-hmm. I don't see it with Weston McKinney. All right. I don't think he's a very Hurtful, good football player. and this interview is over. I don't think he's a very good football player. Like, <laughs> he, he can run. Uh-huh. He can really run. And he can, he can he look, he looks as if he can run 12 to 14 kilometers per game. And if, if you want to be a complete spreadsheet nerd, which I am, uh, and go, Mr. Hassan will need central midfielders that can run and run and run. And someone went, Weston McKenney can run and run and run. I can see that. Uh, if, you want to sort of click the tab and also go thing other things Mr. Hassenhul needs to do in his team, then it gets a bit weirder, and that's why I don't see why there is a link. Is there one specific um, thing that you don't <clears throat> see him doing that you think would be a problem for Southampton, or a couple specific things? I don't. I don't think. I don't think. Unfortunately, I don't think Weston is a particularly good passer of the ball. I don't think he's a particularly good tackler, and um, I don't think his positioning is particularly good. Those are all fairly important when it comes to central midfield presence. I think yes. a lot. I think a lot of American fans and maybe Schalke fans as well would hang on the idea that he gets played in a lot of different positions and hasn't been surrounded by the best talent. And like I think Americans tend to point to say the situation like Josie Altador had at Sunderland, where does he cover himself in glory? Certainly not. Does he get the service and surrounding support that he needs to look like a good striker? Probably not. And that is maybe where I am with Weston McKinney a little bit, is I think your criticisms are pretty on point. My hope would be that if he's played in a consistent position with a coach that has a specific vision for how he wants him to play, as opposed to you're going to be a number 10 this week, a number six this week, a number eight next week, and now you're a right back. I don't think that <laughs> like puts him in the best spot. I doubt that happens with uh, Hasenhudel, is at least my hope, if that move were to happen, which we're not even saying it will, since I think it's mostly speculation at this point. It is mostly speculation. Obviously, as, as a journalist, it's my job to investigate that. And I, I, you know, I trust me, I am. And I will see if there's any smoke to that. Fo- if there's any fire to that smoke, mm-hmm. shall we say? Um, but I, I, to to from a pure sort of I, like really, I don't <laughs> see it. Why? Why? Um, but that's that's besides the point. I think. I mean, Hoiberg is going. We know this for sure. Uh, he was dropped entirely from the squad in the final game of the season, and he. Uh, I've got on very good authority. He did not attend the end of season party for Southampton players before they went off on holiday on the Sunday 
Um, so he pretty much packed up his bads, and now it's just a case of which club is going to match Southampton's valuation. Will it be Everton? Will it be Tottenham Hotspur? Will it be possibly someone else? We shall see. Um, I think Hoiberg as a football player, he is very good at winning the ball and making the short pass that allows Southampton to begin the process anew. When you consider Southampton's entire, you know, like I said before, 75% of what Southampton do is all about what they do when they don't have the ball, which means the times they do have the ball, they have to be very clever and have to, you you know, you spend 75% of your time running around getting the ball. So the person that wins the ball back, it's very important that that person has calmness when they play the five-yard pass so they can begin their sequence. And I think Hoiberg was particularly good at that. Hoiberg was also atrocious at shooting the ball atrocious he has the highest xg he has the highest expected goals for someone that didn't score a goal all season um his xg indicates he should have scored four goals and he scored none uh because he he had a really bad addiction to shooting on the outside of the box when the ball spilled out from a corner kick and you're going no stop like that work when it works it's a goal of the month or a goal of the season contender the 40 or you know the 20 or 25 times where it doesn't work you've just wasted a possession don't do that um which was always really interesting because when you talk to Hoiberg and when you read about Hoiberg and you read interviews about Hoiberg he's a very intelligent young man um there's a very interesting segment in Pep Confidential the book about Guardiola that describes a time where Guardiola and Hoiberg um were basically joined in grief when Hoiberg informed Guardiola that his father was um dying of cancer and Guardiola was very very complimentary of him and speaks very highly of Hoiberg and talks very much about Hoiberg's uh, emotional intelligence and if you talk to Hoiberg and how he sort of understands you know he's a man that understands what was very very important and how but also there's far more important things than football you can understand why at the age of 24 he was a Premier League captain but also for a man who seems that who's that intelligent and understands about how like the bigger picture, he can get drawn into some very very silly things on the football field. Oh, such uh, as I I want to know. I mean, one of them, no, the most particular one, is the shooting, and it's, it's yeah. just like entire. He will always oblige a crowd that goes shoot. Ah. <laughs> Bless his heart. Peer um, pressure, man. Uh, Peer pressure is real. And he will. He, he does. He, Although he has a very nice way of conducting conversations with referees, he kind of get a bit snippy when he's talking to referees as well. Um, So he is a good central midfielder who will be the pine, but I also think the best replacement for Southampton is is Harrison Reed, who will be leading Fulham in the playoff final um, coming up shortly. So Harrison Reed, 24 years of age, came through the academy with James Ward-Prowse, is very, very talented at winning the ball, very, very talented at making those five-yard passes, and he while he only has one goal this season, um, I have faith that he will be better than Hoiberg at shooting the ball. Uh, in terms of their goalkeeping situation, a lot of very specific Southampton questions for you. Uh, mostly just because they've been such a, a strangely captivating team, especially with the restart, but especially with Hasan Hoodle playing the system he does. And I have some questions about that system in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask about Angus Gunn versus Fraser Forster, because Fraser Forster was a player that I thought was going to be like the next great England goalkeeper and is mm-hmm. now maybe the sixth best England goalkeeper? I'm not sure where we are on that list, but why isn't he a more consistent starter for Southampton? Why hasn't he been there? I'm sure I've missed something major, but I'd like to know about that sort of competition and what you think happens next season in the goalkeeper spot. 
So he suffered a huge knee injury in 2000. I want to say 2014. So he dislocated his kneecap 2014 and he was out for an entire year. Um, and when he returned, he helped set a clean sheet record with Ronald Koeman in the 2015 start of the new year where Southampton were, you know, looking like Champions League contenders. Um, and then shortly after that, he just sort of, it didn't quite work out for him because, you know, perhaps because of his knee injury and the effects it had on his mobility, Forster became a very static goalkeeper. He was very much, um, he very much did not move off his goal line. So when you look at the modern goalkeeper and how far, you know, Edison or Allison or not, or, you know, to a less, to a much lesser degree, Angus Gunn, they like to stand way up off their goal line and direct stuff and sometimes stand outside of their penalty area, such as what, how they want to play when their team is in possession. Fraser Forster stood on his goal line, which when you are the best part of six foot seven, you are not working with your body. You're, you're sort of negating half of your strengths. When you're six or seven, if you can shoot off your goal line, and you know, be like a bear or do a starfish. You're gonna be very good on your one-on-ones. Whereas if you're just gonna stay in the goal, you're opening up far more space for a striker to shoot at. Um, I recently did an article with uh, David Priest, um, fantastic goalkeeping coach now at Austerlands, and is a, a highly respected goalkeeping writer and pundit. Sort of, if you want to know about goalkeeping, it's either Matt P from the Athletic or you want to get David Priest uh, and. Uh, David Priest showed me quite a few bits of footage of Fraser Forster and simply went after this knee injury. He sort of stayed on his line and uh, he didn't look as able to get down for one-on-ones as he used to be. And uh, he used something. There's a very interesting goal he conceded against Newcastle a couple of years ago where he used something called, and if you want to get really granular into goalkeeping techniques, he used something called the spin move, um, which and speaking as a wrestling fan, do you remember mm-hmm. when Booker T does the spinner Rooney? Yep. Yes. So the spin move is a, is a sort of tactic where if a goalkeeper makes one save um, and that another shot is coming as well, you can use the spin move to get back onto your feet quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And it uses, you know, it requires you to spin on your back very quickly. And you can get back on your feet quite quickly. Um, Fraser Forster likes using this move. But after his injury, he couldn't quite do it with the same zip that he used to, yeah. which meant there were two or three goals he was conceding where he'd make one save. Um, and as a goalkeeper, Forster also has a tendency to parry it back into the path of danger rather than hold on to it. So he'd make a save, but parry it into danger. He'd do this spin move to try and get back up to his feet quickly. But because he wasn't as quick as he used to be, um, by the time he was finishing that spin move, someone else would have got the the rebound or the tap in for a goal. And it's a very good example. Um, and I think in a 2016 game where Southampton drew two, two against Newcastle for this, um, Force has definitely looked to have, um, built back his confidence while playing in Celtic last season. He, he's beginning to come off his line a lot more now. He's beginning to work with his very impressive physical frame rather than keeping that frame on the goal line. Uh, and he looks confident again. Goalkeeping is such a bizarre science that confidence, you can't, putting a statistic or radar, but definitely you can tell when a goalkeeper is confident compared to one that isn't confident. Um, and if he's indeed returning to Southampton to fight for the number one spot, I think he has a very compelling argument to 
not start for Southampton at the start of, in the very first game next season, but definitely has a compelling argument to uh, get a run of games later on in the season. Hello again, this is me, Taylor, jumping in one more time to let you know that this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by... Artifact. Artifact sets you up with one of their professional interviewers or George Qureshi to make a podcast episode about whatever you want. You might use Artifacts for, say, capturing a family memory or family history by having your parents sit for an interview about what their lives were like before you were born. People can also give them uh, for weddings, for birthdays, for anniversaries. I am going to commission one about parenting. I want to talk to some people who are parents whom I respect about their approach as my wife and I prepare for our first child. Uh, and so far, the process has been very, very easy. I will let you know if that changes. But right now, I went to HeyArtifact.com. I told them a few basic things about what I wanted, how I was hoping it would work, about some of the interviewees, and they took it from there. It was a very, very easy process. If you would like to hear some examples of what they've already done, you can go to HeyArtifact.com to hear those samples. Uh, if you'd like to get one of your own, you can go to HeyArtifact.com slash TSS. Make sure you get that slash TSS in there because that gets you $40 off your first. Once again, that's HeyArtifact.com slash TSS to see our story and then commission one of your own and use the code TSS to get $40 off your first artifact. Thank you very much to Artifact for sponsoring this episode. Now back to Carl one more time. Uh, You formerly wrote about Manchester United for The Athletic, uh, now writing about Southampton. In those conversations about Fraser Forster's goalkeeping technique, did David De Gea come up when it comes to maybe potential issues and why he might be having them? Because I am so very confused about the shots from distance thing, and I'm wondering if you have any theories or thoughts on that. We had, th- did we have this conversation last year? So we may my, have, but I want to do my, it again. <laughs> so last year, my theory was, so when you when you look at when you look at like the classic De Gea performances, when the really good ones, so sort of the one that always springs to mind was the 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 game, the three 0 Manchester United victory over Arsenal, where he made fourteen saves, um, and the majority of those saves were made with his feet, uh, and that was the great, you know, great De Gea was a footballing octopus who could sort of shoot his feet out and use a long barrier cricket technique to make blocks with his feet. And I think what happened towards the end of last season was um, opposition teams going, if you can shoot at De Gea before he sets his feet up to make those sort of blocks, he's not going to expect it. He's not going to be able to get his hands up. And I think that sort of opened up a glitch in his goal-keeping style, which has now progressed into what I think is just a fully blown case of the yips, mm-hmm. where his hands and his wrist strength doesn't look to be the same way it used to be. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of players now are beginning to go shoot on sight against the hair before he can sort his feet out and he'll probably flap at his hands rather than make the save. There are still some good saves the hair makes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he, I think if we're being brutally honest, um, a big reason why Manchester United didn't make top four last season was because he was letting in goals that he probably should have saved. And I think his contract got, got renewed uh, because Manchester United didn't want to look weak in the transfer market rather than because they wanted to keep David De Gea. Um, He's a goalkeeper with a lot of credit in the bank and Manchester United fans, I don't, Manchester United fans don't really criticise him, which I think makes it very interesting when Roy Keane has been very critical about him recently, has made a lot of fans go, steady on Roy. Um, But I think Dean Henderson has now put a compelling case to be Manchester United's number one. If anything, I think the best example is going on with David Hay is probably what happened to Pepe Reina at Liverpool, where sort of there was a time where Pepe Reina was meant, did everything for Liverpool's defence and he could be relied upon to do everything. But after season after season after season of not getting the help he needed in defence, 
he just couldn't maintain that sort of godly output. And then it all went to pieces. And I think when you look at De Gea and how many player of the seasons he won, he won in a row and how when you look at um, in the season when Mourinho took Manchester United to second, the XG actually indicated Manchester United probably should have finished fifth. But De Gea was basically standing on his head, putting in one of the greatest goalkeeping seasons of all time. And then he immediately goes away and has an atrocious World Cup um, because he just couldn't maintain that level of concentration anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happened. A bit similar to when a boxer gets punched drunk. You can get a, you know, a bit to a goalkeeper where they just have made too many saves. How do you think then you pull the goalkeeper out of that spiral? Is it like you just kind of put your arm around them as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has done and, and sort of back them to get it right? Is it about just needing a change in scenery or is it about maybe giving them some time on the bench to think about things a bit more and get their head right? I think it's all three. I think Ole has definitely tried putting his arm around the shoulder. I think there's um, been a lot of talk in, in the goalkeeping coaches. And I think what was particularly interesting about the hair is not only did he go on this amazing goalkeeping spell for Manchester United, but he did it after Eric Steele, the, you know, the, the Alex Ferguson's former goalkeeping coach um, and the guy who's regarded as one of the best goalkeeping coaches out there. He even learned Spanish so he could better communicate with the hair. There's a fantastic story about when he goes to the hair's house um, and basically goes, show me what you eat for dinner. And then they sort of realized what they needed to do to cope in the Premier League. Like, we can tell in a bit. <clears throat> um, so when Steele left, De Gea got his own goalkeeping coach, someone he's quite close to. And you can there have been, apparently there are two or three times where De Gea will make a mistake and he sort of looks to his goalkeeping coach and his goalkeeping coach go, you know, is trying to like calm down, mm-hmm. stand firm. This is what you do, which is remarkable. You think of how old the hair is and the fact that he can, he's still now, you know, to this day looking for on the field encouragement. Uh, my recommendation, I think, you know, now the season is over, there's enough time to get a break and there's probably some time for discussion in the 52 days we've got between seasons. Ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> was uh, he eating I, like gummy bears? Like what was he eating for dinner? Uh, tacos. tacos. Oh, okay. So, uh, so, so the story goes, Eric still went round his house and said, don't pay, don't pay attention to me. I'll be like a fly on the wall. Just go about your day. Um, and De Gea sort of, you know, gets past five o'clock, gets past six, seven o'clock, gets to nine o'clock, and then De Gea starts making tacos. And Eric just went, "You're eating dinner far too late." Yep. If you, you eat before start. eight, right? Isn't that the yeah, rule? Apparently so. Um, and that was one of the big sort of moments where De Gea went from being a, a slightly string bean like goalkeeper to to being the fantastic goalkeeper we saw two or three seasons ago. So is there a chance that he's just eating tacos at 9 p.m. again and that's why he can't get his wrist straight and his feet set? <laughs> I think I think it's it, it's a bit like tennis or it's a bit like boxing where, you know, you, you have a tell and people figure out his tell. If you shoot early, you have a problem. It's a bit similar uh, to use another goalkeeping example. Joe Hart has a very recognizable tell that most Premier League teams now know. And that is partially why Joe Hart is not with the Premier League team right now, because everyone knows if you do a certain thing, Joe Hart can't make a save. I, what is that thing? Because I don't think I know this tell. Uh, Joe Hart is not particularly good at making saves low to his left. Huh. So just aim, just aim low to the left and you're good to go? Yep. Wow. And uh, half the league knew it in his last season at West Ham. And now all the league knows it. And it's quite hard. So Joe Hart has a... Either Joe Hart learns to make saves low to his left or Joe Hart has to find somewhere else to play football. 
on the surface, that seems like a very simple thing of like, Joe Hart is bad at this one particular thing, so let's all aim for that. That seems like a thing that like you could kind of learn and watch from watching a bunch of games and like finding those patterns. But I'm assuming a huge part of the understanding of those kind of vulnerabilities relates to analysis, particularly of of the data involved. I know, like you've mentioned XG several times on this on this show. How important do you think that has been to understanding those sort of small vulnerabilities that can be exploited when you're talking about these top tier teams? Oh, it's huge. I think one of the greatest compliments and the worst thing that can happen to you if you're a superstar or uh, indeed a superstar goalkeeper is just how scrutinized you are and how much hours of footage and how much people, you know, coaches are looking into why Scott trying to find your every flaw or trying to find a system or trying to find a thing to make you less effective. Um, I There is no doubt in my mind people at Manchester City have dossiers on Alison Becker's perceived weaknesses and vice versa at Liverpool on what Edison can be done. Um, when Southampton beat Manchester City in the restart games, Ralph basically went, yeah, we know Edison plays like a sweeper, so we had a plan. Mm-hmm. We had a plan of just, we're going we're gonna to try one of our pressing traps, um, but we particularly told our strikers, shoot on sight if you win the ball high up the pitch, because Edison's probably going to be 25 yards off his line. Lo and behold, Che Adams lobs him from nearly 40 yards out of goal. Um, and that was the winning goal. And I think that's the, the goal. Goalkeeping is a weird mix of mathematics, boxing, physics, uh, and a whole bunch of intangibles and poker. Mm-hmm. And I think you can, you can have, you know, in the same way that a great boxer can get knocked out once and just not come back the same way. You can have great goalkeepers that just have a bad one. And you're like, well, hang on, what happened there? I mean, Ike Casillas looked like one of the greatest goalkeepers of all, you know, was one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time, looked to be the god of Real Madrid, and then didn't mm-hmm. quite quickly. That, I mean, yeah, that that is a fair summary of how it went for Ike Casillas, and it is a fair summary for how it goes for certain players. When those players then have that downturn in form, when they seem surplus to requirement, and a coach is looking to bring in somebody to replace David De Gea or uh, Fraser Forster or, let's say, Hoiberg when he leaves, how much do you think stats are playing a role there? As in, if Hasenhutl was looking for, I need that player who can be calm when we regain possession, I need them to be good on the ball so they can find those opportunities when everything around them is kind of chaos how much of that do you think relates to the data do you think he has a short list based on this player has this percentage passes completed in this type of scenario and has this many ball retentions under this type of scenario like how detailed do you think they're going to find players that sort of they can rest assured will fit their approach i think it varies from club to club so when you consider i think manchester united are you know as a they're a european super heavyweight and manchester united they have too much money Really, there, there's, you know, you talk about too rich to fail. Manchester United are so rich, they don't really need it. They've got a great scouting department and they look into data and whatnot, but also they're so rich, they can also let other clubs do it. And, like, you know, what? we don't need to find Jaden Sancho when he's only 30 million. We can buy him for 120 million later on in that sort of ugh, football is bizarre system. Um, and there's no, there's no doubt in my mind, if you look at the way Solskjaer has built his squad for Manchester United. It's very clear he's looking for certain sorts of players. He did a great interview with United We Stand where he said he'd much rather have a hole in his team than a <laughs> hole, um, which is very fun, mm-hmm. uh, which means not only is he looking at stats and want to build a player, but he's also definitely looking for characteristics. He's, you know, it, you know he, he came up under Ferguson. He very much wants to meet the man behind the numbers, shall we say. And, you know, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, 
very, very good, you know, very, very good defensive minded right back. There were questions of whether or not he could go forward. And I think in conversation with Wan Basaka, it became quite clear that, you know, Solskjaer went, I can teach you the rest of it. Don't worry about it. And lo and behold, Wan Basaka's got better at going forward. And I think that's the way Manchester United try and build in that you can get Ollie saying, I need a player that can do these sort of things. And then they will have conversations with Ed Woodward and then they will go out and try and find them. But with Manchester United, money is because Manchester United money is not really a concern. They don't have to find the you know sleeper in the transfer market as compared to how Southampton would try and do it. So from what I understand, Ralph has like a list, like a sort of Ten Commandments list of how he likes it, the sort of players he, he likes, uh, which I don't know them for sure. But it looks as if he doesn't want to buy players over the age of 24. He likes to buy players that are particularly athletic and he likes to buy players that are um, two-way threats, shall we say, that are very diligent in defence as well as attack. He's had enough that, of Hoybjerg missing <laughs> shatters then, basically? He wants two-way? I think, I think so. I think it was a two-way thing, which is one of the things of why Western, the links to Western mechanics don't quite make sense to me. Once again, um, that's personally hurtful, but that's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I, I hold my hands up. I completely got Pulisic wrong. I thought he would be a dud, and he's so good. Uh, so good. I, 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 was, I was a little concerned, I'm not going to lie. So, yeah, that, that, that one seems to have gone a little bit better. I want to stay with Ole for a moment because I think you're absolutely right in the way he has sort of changed that squad around, gotten out the players that I think don't fit or is still actively trying to get rid of some of the players that don't fit in Alexis Sanchez's case. Where do you think Paul Pogba is for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in terms of the type of player that came through the Manchester United Academy, which Pogba did to some extent? Uh, like, Do you think he would be a player that Solskjaer would want if he weren't currently playing with Manchester United? Or do you think other midfielders fit more with what Solskjaer wants to do? That is a really good question. It's, it's, it's one that it's just occurred really to me and I've never good, really thought if, about. If Pogba wasn't at Manchester United, would Manchester United want Paul Pogba? Uh, I think the answer would be no now, not for I think I think Manchester United dramatically misunderstood what Paul Pogba is. And I think much of the football world do not un, does not understand Paul Pogba. Uh, and I, I, I tweeted about this in conversation with a really good United journalist called Daniel Harris. Um, of Essentially, the best and worst thing about Paul Pogba is that he's six foot two. Because mm-hmm. you see... You see Paul Pogba and you go, oh, you're really, you'd be a really good defensive midfielder. And Pogba, he hates defending. Yep. He he hates defending and he looks very uninterested in the concept of defending. Um, and the way, so the way Pogba runs across the pitch and the way he can cover ground. So he, he's got that, this very, he's got a very wide gate and he can cover, uh, you know, 30 yards and maybe four or five steps. So you look at him and you go, oh, you're really athletic and I can use you as a two-way threat. No. No, if Paul Pogba was five foot nine, everyone would go, "Oh, you're a number ten. Yep, just just make passes and stay forward. Don't worry about it. Don't like leave the rest of this dirty work to the man you manage and Fred." But because because he's so tall, he very often gets put on set piece defending. He's very often asked to get involved into certain uh, defensive work that I don't think he's particularly good at or he's particularly interested in. Paul Pogba is a fantastic football player when he has a very clearly defined role, and it's make the sorts of passes no one else can see and garnish games and knit together our defense and attack. So he, I, knits, he knits together defense yeah. and attack. He is not your defense and attack. And I think what happened when Manchester United bought Pogba is they thought Pogba could do everything the Juventus midfield. They thought he could be 
the playmaker of Perlo, the running of Marquisio, and also the and also like the aggressive on the ball work of Arturo Vidal when Pogbaran essentially just kind of wants to be Perlo. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about knitting together the defense to the attack because then my question was going to be, then why do they need Bruno? Why couldn't they have just put him in that number 10? But you're right. Even then, that's not that sort of speaks to like, oh, he's big. Let's put him in this spot. But also, I think defensively, they were like, let's he's big. Let's put him in a more number eight spot and he'll challenge all over the field. If Pog was five foot eight, everyone would understand what he does more. Pog, Pog also has one of these things where he's very, very affected by external factors. You can see it when you when you watch a game of Paul Pogba, when you watch Paul Pogba play, he very clearly does not like it when he's being pressed. Like you can see it in his face when mm-hmm. two people charge up and he's like, "No, go away!" Oh, yeah. I hate it, uh, and like really hates it. And you can see like you can you can see he can be got to if you trash talk him enough or like give him enough nonsense, you can throw him off his game. There's a really good bit where he's on international duty. I think it's a friendly against um, the Netherlands, and he's talking to Kevin Strootman, and I love it because. Pogba speaks about four languages, but very specifically chooses to swear at Kevin Strootman in English. Because <laughs> he's like, I, I, I want to insult you. What's the language I need to use to get at you? Um, and he like stops and goes, shut the F up. Um, and uh, there's also, the, Pogba also has this thing where you can sort of, when he's sort of shielding the ball, you can see this in wide areas where he will try and shield the ball and get his body out yep. with, a, with a player. And sometimes he can be so into that action and so into the idea of look how strong I am you, his team was like could you just move the ball we're trying to get a counter attack on just like give me it um, I think Paul Pogba was you improve Manchester United by buying a better defensive midfielder and going to Paul Pogba don't worry about defence because we've got Idris Gay next to you or mm-hmm. we've got you know the player we all thought Fred would be. <laughs> I was going to say you started to say Fred and then immediately yeah. changed course. Or <laughs> we've got 2013 Nemanja Matic, shall yeah. we say? Uh, and I think that that's how you've improved Manchester United's midfield. Pogba and Bruno together is fantastic because they both. I think Bruno is great because Bruno doesn't care about wasting time on the ball. Bruno's constant thing is I'm going to pass the ball forward, mm-hmm. and when you've got that. That's great, but that also means you need to have someone behind him who can also spray it not just forwards, but left and right, and sometimes sideways, which Pogba's very good at doing. But you also need someone to, whose entire job is, I'm just going to win the ball and give it to you two. Um, go in a time machine and get Gattuso for me. I'd be uh, sure. I'd be fine with that. <laughs> I, I would. I would have no problem with Gattuso. That's. I think that's a, a transfer I always made happen in late '90s, early 2000s iterations of FIFA. Probably mid 2000s iterations of FIFA is when Gattuso was joining Man United. I think Totti was as well for me. I also really love. I have to say, Carl. I can tell when you're acting out things you're saying in a way that, like, <laughs> we're not doing this via video. Uh, it's just the audio. But I can tell, like, when you say big and strong, I could tell you flexed out a little bit there. I'm enjoying oh. the actions that go along with the descriptions. It's a really good pairing, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I, I, I will eventually move on from Manchester United. But in terms of that... Number six, I think I'm with you that I don't think Nemanja Matic plays all of the many, many games that are going to be happening next season uh, with the abbreviated window that you've already mentioned. What would you like to see Manchester United do to strengthen and in what specific positions do you think they either need a more capable starter or a more capable deputy? uh, Manchester United need a left back. So you you could see they sort of limped over the line to get to get into Champions League spaces. And I think a lot of that had to do with Luke Shaw being injured. Yep. Um, Luke Shaw, a player perhaps not the most well regarded by 
people outside of Carrington and Old Trafford, but it's very important to how they play. It's very important to just giving that extra wick on the left-hand side when you consider Martial and Rashford are constantly trying to cut inside. And he's uh, he's also the one, I think when, when Van Hall was there, he gets injured and Van Hall pinpoints that as the reason Manchester United stopped creating attacking chances is because Luke yeah. Shaw was injured. So two different managers, I think, have, have felt the pain of losing Luke Shaw for a couple games. Luke Shaw breaking his leg is why Memphis Dubai is now at Lyon. Yep. Because Memphis, at the start of his Manchester United thing, was simply like, okay, I'm running, oh, I'm stuck in a one-on-one. One, one on one. Oh, Luke Shaw's overlapped. There's the ball. Yep. I'm going to go do other things. Whereas when Luke Shaw got injured and it was Damian, I want to say Damian was the thing. I forgot Darmian about Matteo Damian and the mutton chops. Yep. Uh, yeah. Damian cannot boil an egg. <laughs> Wait, is that a real thing? That doesn't yeah, surprise me. That was yep. a real thing. Yeah. yeah Damian, uh, bless his heart, could not boil an egg. So uh, when the United doctor told him he needed to bulk up and eat more eggs with his dinner, he sort of went up to Carrington and went, could you boil me three eggs every single day so I can take home with me? Like, I hope I uh, hope it's that. I hope that's not just lazy entitlement of like, I don't want to boil my own eggs. No, thank you. Bless him. He didn't have to boil an egg. All right. That, um, that makes me feel a little better, I guess. I think Manchester United are a left back and a defensive midfielder and a right winger away from being confirmed Champions League team. All right. So in that sort of thing of... They say the league table doesn't lie, but let's be really real. Manchester United would not have finished third if there wasn't a hundred day gap for Marcus Rashford and Paul Popper to get fitness again. Right. Yeah, they it's we we can put an asterisk on Manchester United finishing third this season. Yep. In the same way I put an asterisk on United finishing second on the Mourinho and sort of Yeah, you did it, but someone was playing out their skin for you to do it. Um I, I think what you need I think Bruno, there's overreliance on Bruno, which that second unit of matches, when you consider the if Bruno gets injured, you move Paul Pogba up, and then you play Scott McTominay and Fred, which is okay, but then you lose Scott, you lose Paul Pogba's build up from deep, and if Paul Pogba's out, then you have to use Andreas Pereira, Scott McTominay, Fred, and Matic. I, I shattered. I physically shattered. That is not a Champions League quality midfielder. So make one more central, one more. You definitely need a defensive midfielder. Mm, uh, no. Mm. Well, we've already got we've already got Gattuso in the time machine. We're we're, yep. we're going to make that happen, uh, and so, then Jaden Sancho also seems like it's still in the works. Though Dortmund refused to lower their asking price, or at least that's the public facing position. That is going to uh, don't know what will happen there. That's going to last all ten weeks. Yep. it's going to be if yeah, it's going to be the big content machine for the summer of uh, Jaden Sancho. I think on on talk, talk of the Devils on Manchester United podcast, I think we're going to have a Jaden Sancho section. In all he's got for, for every show yeah it's like what's Shaden Sancho doing here's what we know um, well, I think a lot of that then I wanted to go back to a point you made about that second place season under Jose Mourinho and I think I do subscribe to the idea that Jose does sort of work magic works and wonders to make that second place finish happens goes to the to make it happen goes to the board and sort of says like I made this happen but this squad is not good enough and we will not get go further we will certainly not challenge for the title unless we reinvest and then feels like he's not backed I do sort of buy into that narrative do you think then the board has changed that approach or do you think they will see this third place finish as hey we're in the Champions League spots we're probably not going to catch Man City and Liverpool very quickly so that's fine and they will they sort of be hesitant to invest or do you think they now understand they understand the optics as well as they did with signing David De Gea, do you think they will throw some money in this window to try to strengthen considerably? 
I think they're going to invest, and I think they're going to invest because the players Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wants are just make more sense from a business point of view than the players Mourinho wants to invest. Mourinho went, okay, I came second. I want Alexis Sanchez and Ivan Perisic and Toby Alderweireld. And if you're Ed Woodward, you're going, they're all nearly in their 30s. Yep. What? Why, are you, why are you suggesting this? You want to sell Martial too for Perisic? Bear in mind, Ivan Perisic now has had you know a, a decent segment yep. at Bayern Munich, but it looks like he's going back to Inter Milan, and Inter Milan don't really want him yep. because they want the old Alexis Sanchez, which it's, is one of those sorts of... I have no idea what Antonio Conte is doing. It, it's that confusing. A, it's confusing. He's relying on Ashley Young is what he's doing. So there you go. I, I can see that... Like, I think Antonio Conte went to England and went, wow, English, all English players can run 10 kilometers. <laughs> that's how you win a Serie A title, yep. and that's why he's doing this. There you go. Um, but that's that's a story for another. I think the players that Solskjaer wants and he has identified um, make more sense from from a and I'm saying in a, in a cold business sense bottom line. If you are Manchester United, if you are a you know multi billion dollar corporation, you it makes more sense to bring bring in someone of Jaden Sancho's marketability um, than it does to bring in Ivan Perisic. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I, if if they're looking at, at acquisitions, who do you think they're going for? I think Sancho will will happen. I think it's going to take a very long time for it to happen, and I think it will probably be a three figure, yeah, in terms of millions. Um, I think he will play on the right wing, and I think he will improve United in a way that makes United look like a team that decides defending is for nerds. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I, I, I've got a sneaky feeling Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to make Dean Henderson the number one. And uh, De Gea will become the Champions League goalkeeper as a sort of we'll make you the Champions League goalkeeper. You deserve you deserve a Champions League run, but also don't worry about it. I'll be very surprised if De Gea starts these Europa League runs when they're playing in Germany as well, um, because I think he needs a rest. He needs knackered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's I think there's a possibility. And I, I, I think there's a possibility Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to look into getting another centre back. Because while Harry Maguire has improved the defence, there's probably space for one more. Um, I think there's also space for another right back. And there's also, sp- well, I think backup right back will be taken up by Timmy Fosu Mensa. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of backup left back, yeah, I think you might need to get someone to look after Brandon Williams when you look sure he's injured. Yep. Um, yeah, I think in terms of, I think Sancho is going to happen, whether I like it or not. Uh, and then after that, it's going to be. Left back, right back, centre back, and then central midfielder. But I would, I would, if you gave me foot manager, the first player I'm buying is a defensive midfielder, and it's probably a dresser gay. I would have no problem with that. I would have no problem. <laughs> I, I, I've been saying this uh, to Daryl, my co-host, multiple times in the last month that Schalke have publicly stated they're not going to challenge for the Champions League. They're going to try to like cut costs wherever they can. I really think a loan to Schalke for Brandon Williams makes a lot of sense because I think we saw uh, some of his vulnerabilities, uh, especially when under pressure. I think you're absolutely right. He doesn't create some of those kind of attacking options. I think it explains why Rashford's productivity drops a little bit. I would not mind a season on loan at Schalke where I think he probably starts every single game and really develops his game o- overall. What would you make of that one? Would you be fine with that? I think so. I think I think one of the interesting things now is it looks as if Solskjaer is going to sell Dalo. Yeah. Um, which Dalo looked okay in the majority of the games I saw him. He, he didn't stand out. He was better than Damien, but 
Ken Boyle and Egg, better. we assume. That's but yeah, he was better than Damian and Ken Boyle and Egg, but that was about it. <laughs> uh, and I think there's definitely some team squad members that will have to be moved on. Here's a fun name. You remember Marcos Rojo? Uh, yes, I do remember Marcos Rojo. He needs to be moved on. <laughs> he was on loan, right, this season, but is still on, on the books? Yeah, he was on loan, still on the books, but so he'll need to be moved on, and he's burnt toast. <laughs> Man, he see that one. I get that one. I know. I I can't. I kind of forgot that that Rojo is still being paid. That's good stuff. All right. Well, uh, we've talked Manchester United to probably a a depressing degree for Man United fans and a frustrating degree for those of people who don't like Man United. The final thing I wanted to ask about before uh, I call it a day, since you've been very generous with your time, and I do appreciate that, Carl. Uh, the Premier League 60 is a thing that we talked a little bit about before we started recording. What is that? What are you doing with it? And uh, how's it going so far? It's going really well. So it's a it's an idea we, we formulated I want to say about a month and a half ago at the Athletic, where we decided we were going to do, we were going to try and name the top 60 Premier League players of all time. And we, we mean Premier League, as in post 92, yep. the Premier League. Um, so every writer on the Athletic had a little spreadsheet and you were allowed to vote and you were allowed to pick who you think your top 60 are in any order. So we did all that. The spreadsheet came out. We went, okay, this looks like our top 60. Um, I was invited in a special zoom call that was meant to last half an hour that ended up lasting 90 minutes yep. as we argued the top 20 um and that created our top 20 and then from there we sort of filled out the other, we reshaped the other 40 and that was my last involvement and then after that we could we like rejigged the top 60 yet again um because some final names sort of didn't make the cut that we went oh no you have to have so and so in there um and from there a number of the athletic writers have been given um, anywhere between three to six features. So I, uh, the very first one I am writing, um, I am just finishing it now. So before this podcast, I just finished it. Um, so I'll be sending that off and that will, that gentleman will be in the top 50, I believe. So the idea is to have one essay or feature a day for the next 60 days as we go from here to what will probably be the start of next the next Premier League season, uh, and then you can all yell at the Athletic for putting um, Ali D at number one. <laughs> I hope I really hope he's top ten. Um, <laughs> you may have just answered it, uh, but like when you're talking about a call to decide the top twenty players in the Premier League in Premier League history, that was supposed to be thirty minutes and goes to ninety. I'm assuming that means it does get a little bit contentious. Soccer seems to have that, or football, excuse me, has that has that sort of like uh, air to it where it can start off very, oh, no, I don't think he was that good. I think he was pretty good. And it can end with like, I hate you and we're never talking about soccer again because you're totally wrong. How <laughs> tense was that phone call or was it more or less good natured throughout? We, we were mostly good natured. So the Athletics hired quite a few journalists that have done this before for other publications and whatnot. So um, there were people that had helped make the Guardian 100 football players of a year uh, or people that had contributed to 442 when they did their top 100. Uh, and they explained sort of how their experiences have fed into this experience and how you did certain rankings and whatnot. Um, but it's very interesting how people's brain works and how your memory works and how you can work counterintuitive to what you what you should do. So I was born in 1991. I don't have particularly great memories of Eric Cantona. All I really have is YouTube and what people tell me about Eric Cantona. So 
Um, I'm not going to tell you where I put Eric Anthony in my list, but it was not. I definitely, there was a point in time where I went, I'm going to put Cantona here because I think he should be here. But also I went, no, I'm not going to put him there because in my head, he's not that important. I'm actually going to put him here. Um, and you get to things like that. I also had, I think what was particularly interesting was um, how certain players come as duo, like come as a duo, whether you like it or not. Yep. Um, which can affect your rankings elsewhere. Um, so I will use a, an example from 442. Um, there was a, in the 442 in 2011, 442 did their 100 best football players in the world. Um, Messi was number one, Ronaldo was number two, but joint third was Xavi and Iniesta. Yeah. <laughs> I figured and they that said, was going to be it. Yeah. And they said we couldn't separate them. So we, we put them joint third, which meant the next person was Swift, which, did, which caused like a weird altering of the top 10 because you had two people at number three. Um, and I think one of the interesting things here is when you think of who are the 60 greatest Premier League players. The moment you put Steven Gerrard somewhere, people go, where did you put Frank Lampard? Yeah, <laughs> it's really strange. Yep, I thought the same or, thing. Or, they go, people go, or the moment you put Gerrard in the list, people go, where did you put Frank Lampard? Yep. Or vice versa. Or the moment you put Paul Scholes in, you start going, Where's, where is Paul Scholes in relation to Frank Lampard or whatnot? Yeah. So as a, you know, when you're doing this list, you go, do I put them next to each other? Do I put someone in between them? Um, and you have that in sort of... I, and my one was, was definitely... Um, there were th- two or three times when I was on the call I went, you cannot have Mo Salah there if Saudi Amane isn't there in terms of if, if you have Mo Salah X and Saudi Amane has to be Y yep. and I was going I was that was my big one, I was like, no you can't you cannot do that, you cannot do that and I, I two things, I'm like, you completely forgot all Saudi Amane's contributions for Southampton mm-hmm. um, oh, and, wow, yeah I did, that's another one, see? Yeah, when I made that <laughs> Liverpool joke earlier, there you go, Saudi Amane I forgot he was there as well See, that's the thing. Um, and you, you, you get into that and sort of, if you put John Terry at X, does that, where, you know, you have to put, do you have to put Rio Ferdinand? Y? Where, where do you put Wayne Bridge? Yeah, totally. I got you. Yeah. Uh, you get, you get into that sort of thing, which made, you know, a half hour phone conversation last 90 minutes. Um, what was interesting was we had a pretty much unanimous number one. Christian Pulisic, obviously. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, I, know. And, uh, I I was actually wondering that. I was trying to think who the number one consensus Premier League player would be, and and it is it's strange because I think you're absolutely right with the Cantona point. That my mind goes to certain players that, like Alan Shearer, I understand was incredibly important for Blackburn and for Newcastle, obviously. But like I I wasn't watching the Premier League really then. Like I have vague memories of of moments and vague clip memories, but I can't say for sure that he was better. Like Gaza is the same. I don't know who my number one would be, but I'm assuming it's somebody from more recent history. I cannot reveal. All right. uh, I, can, I can say on our 60-person list, 12 of them are currently playing in the Premier League. Okay. Oh, All right. 12 of them are currently playing in the Premier League. Um, it used to be 13 because David Silva has now departed. Okay. All right. So you can <laughs> give me that one. So it's David Silva somewhere on the list. All right. So we, we are on 57 now. Mm-hmm. So number 60 was Les Ferdinand. 59 was, uh, we've had Les Ferdinand, Jamie Carragher, uh, and I think today's one was David De Gea, Ooh, which again was interesting. a really interesting one into yeah. where do you put goalkeepers because I don't think there are many football journalists or pundits who used to be goalkeepers. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. You do get a little thing about, okay, I've had 15 strikers now, I should probably put in a goalkeeper or a defender or because, you know, we've had 25 years of the Premier League, but 13 of those seasons were won by Manchester United players. Yeah. You do get in a bit of going, hang on, I've put in too many United players. Do I put in a 
Spurs one now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, goalkeeper is tough. I'm 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 going through it and like I guess Czech is in that conversation maybe and Peter Schmeichel's probably in that conversation. I aside from that, I struggle. I'm I'm sure there are people screaming at me for forgetting obvious names here, <laughs> but those are the two that most readily come to mind. It's, it's the joy, the joy of lists like this, because ultimately it it, it, it doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> I suppose not. I suppose not. But it's worth uh, three times the length of the phone call to make sure that you get it exactly right and make sure Sadio Mane is in there somewhere. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, right, well, um, I, I'll be writing Sadio Mane's essay and I'm looking forward to it greatly. I, I had a feeling you would be. Uh, Carl, <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to talk Southampton, to talk Manchester United, to... To, to be mysterious and hint at player rankings without giving them away, it's why you're a professional. But Carl, thank you so much for taking all the time to talk about all those things. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 